I'm Josh Porter, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. The following teaching is part one in the series, Reclaiming Faithfulness as an Act of Rebellion. Christians often fear and vilify moments and seasons of doubt and despair as if they don't come for us all, but they do. Are those times of encroaching dark, feeling overwhelmed by an insane world, indications of spiritual bankruptcy, or invitations into spiritual maturity? Sometime around 2004, I think it was, I ran into an old friend in the lobby of an olive garden in rural southeast Georgia, especially back then, circa 2004, there were no options for hip dining experiences. So for a special dinner out, our family would drive 45 minutes into Savannah, Georgia to enjoy all the luxury of the Olive Garden. Or maybe even Outback Steakhouse, if the mood was that's right. Whoa, the special, truly special occasion. So on this uh, at this point in time, today, my you know, vegan household can enjoy several good options of just about any genre of food imaginable if you, know, you don't mind the hour of traffic to and from Portland both ways. It should be about 10 minutes, but it's about an hour and 45 minutes. Go figure. But back then, for all I knew, Olive Garden really was the fanciest night on the town. And uh, it's funny because I was already traveling full-time back then. I'd already been at this point in every state in the country, every major city, most of the minor ones even. But when your traveling budget is all of $5 a day and your map of the country isn't an iPhone, it's an actual paper map, life isn't exactly a buffet of dining options. Olive Garden was a welcome reprieve from the off-brand white bread that crumbled when I tried to cover it with my putty-like off-brand peanut butter. Uh, It was a glorious reward for months of surviving on stale sandwiches and canned pasta sauce. Yes, when you're here, you truly are family. (laughs) And it was my parents' treat. Eager to see us after weeks on the road, it was a celebratory dinner. We spared no expense, the Olive Garden. So there I sat turning over a plastic pager in my hand, enjoying Nina Rota's score from The Godfather. And <laughs> it's true, it really was playing. And the impatient grumbling of southern dads around me in polo shirts, you know, frustrated with wait times, and hey, will that family get here after us, and why is their pager going off, you know, all that stuff. And then sitting here, excited, hungry, waiting, a familiar shape looms over my head. I looked up and saw my old friend, Paul. Paul is about six foot seven, And uh, he and I had been best friends all through grade school and junior high. We lived at each other's houses uh, most summers. We'd ride our bikes to Michael's video, and we would rent horror movies on VHS, get scared, and then stay up late eating junk food and playing Ninja Turtle games on Super Nintendo, and then wake up early to watch X-Men Saturday morning cartoons on Channel 28. Paul and I, we belonged to the same youth group. We went to the same church retreats and on the same camping trips. I'd seen him cry during youth group sessions and in worship. And in the kind of, you know, rough around the edges, work in progress way of young discipleship, I had seen him profess Jesus. Eventually, I went out to travel and play punk rock music, and Paul went on to play football for the NFL. 
That's where life had taken either of us when I saw him standing over me in an olive garden in Georgia sometime in 2004. It had been a really long time since I had seen the guy, this guy with whom I used to collect Jurassic Park trading cards and alien versus predator action figures, the guy with whom I'd gotten into all kinds of trouble for prank calls and fireworks, the guy with whom I used to cover Nirvana songs in my garage, but also the guy that I would walk to church with on Wednesday evenings and Sunday nights, the guy that I would practice memory verses with so we could both go on the youth group ski trip. That was the payment that you had to make <laughs> to qualify. We exchanged pleasantries there in the Olive Garden lobby. He asked about the band. I asked about the Atlanta Falcons. Football was good, he told me. The band was good, I told him. And then he asked me, this is a true story, he asked me, are you still doing that Jesus thing? What does that mean? What's with the phrasing? It sounded like a, a Doobie Brothers lyric. Are you still doing the Jesus thing? But I figured, you know, I knew what he meant. I was 21 or 22 at the time. We had had our ups and downs, Jesus and me, so had me and Paul. I'd been, at this point, chewed up and spit out by the fundamentalist, nationalistic evangelicalism of my upbringing. I'd been through adolescent disillusionment and bitterness and cynicism with the church and with Christianity itself, and there would be more coming in the years ahead. But even so, I told him, yeah, I am still doing the Jesus thing. And he gave a nod that was neither agreement nor disapproval. It was just an acknowledgment. So I asked him the same thing, feeling as if I knew the answer already. And he shook his head, saying only, and I quote, that stuff isn't all it's cracked up to be. Those were his exact words. I remember them vividly. And then his pager hummed and flashed its red lights. We said our goodbyes. His party made its way to their table. And that was the last time I saw Paul. But every now and then, the exchange sort of resurfaces in my memory. That stuff isn't all it's cracked up to be. In a way, the conversation with Paul was a precursor for the years ahead. Sure, even, even back then, I had already seen people come and go from church and from faith and from Jesus. I had seen the spiritual fortitude, you know, the discernible resolve of spiritual sources of inspiration for me ebb and flow over the years, peers and adults. But here was a guy that I'd known as good as I'd known any person, and he had come and went and now he was gone. I never found out what it was like or why it happened. Had he and Jesus grown distant over the years? Had they ever really been close? Did faith drift slowly until it became an afterthought, then a memory? Or was there a moment, you know, a divorce, a conscious decision? Where did Paul go? Where do you go when you go? It's October. The fall is finally here, though it seems like God's judgment is on us because the miserable warm weather won't just die already. For us, Advanced City, the church year sort of begins in October. There's a handful of reasons why our fiscal year begins in October, like Cam was just saying. And that's when we set a new budget and we make a plan for the months ahead. It's when the lull of summer kind of comes to a close and life, in a certain sense anyway, sort of resumes. Kids go back to school. Life picks up again. And because of that, this is the season of our annual vision series. The vision series is a time when we as a church circle up, remind each other why we're here, what we're doing, where we're going. If you're new 
or visiting, my name's Josh. I'm the pastor of teaching and creative vision at Van City, which, among other things, means that one of my responsibilities is to help lead and steward the vision of our church, our approach to and imagination for the present and the future submitted to the authority of Jesus. This year... Reclaiming faithfulness as an act of rebellion. Every generation feels like the world is unraveling. As a teenager, I remember my parents' faces when I told them that I had learned that a 15-year-old girl in my world history class was pregnant. What's this world coming to? Our, or when a kid in our youth group, very good friend of mine, passed out drunk in his car and choked to death on his vomit. I remember when a friend of ours, a middle-class suburban kid headed toward a football scholarship, was arrested for drug possession, or another like him for driving while intoxicated. Two kids I went to grade school with shot and killed a local store owner in a robbery gone wrong just down the street. And it wasn't just in here in our small little world. It was out there too. Everyone felt like the world was losing it. In 1988, me and my brother nearly missed the land before time in theaters because our church had demanded a boycott of the local cineplex because they were screening Martin Scorsese's The Last Temptation of Christ, in which Jesus, played by Willem Dafoe, figure that one out, he has a, a vision of abandoning his call as the Messiah, he, and instead he gets married and has kids with Mary Magdalene instead. So Hollywood had truly gone too far, we said, adapting a novel from 1955. And it wasn't just the big screen, it was TV too. In 1993, a five-year-old boy set fire to his mobile home, killing his two-year-old sister inside, and later the boy's mother claimed he had been inspired by MTV's Beavis and Butthead. Madonna was on TV at the same time, making people feel all awkward. And even my parents, their son had become something of a southern anomaly uh, by becoming goth and had taken to wearing all black all the time. Undeniable indication of internal corruption. <laughs> My parents thought the world was going insane. They said so often, and so did their parents. There had been the emergence of the AIDS crisis and the war on drugs in the 80s. There had been the Manson family murders in 1969 and The Exorcist in 1973. There had been Woodstock and beat poets and uproar over civil rights activism in the 60s. And there was Jazz and Elvis in the 50s. There, the ban on interracial marriage in California didn't end until 1948. And before that, there were Nazis and A-bombs and death camps. And before any of that, there had been civil war and colonization and manifest destiny, wholesale slaughter of indigenous people. Before before any of that, there had already been the Black Plague and medieval torture chambers, and long before that, there had been Greek pederasts as political leaders and Roman emperors who fed children to lions. There were temple prostitutes and religious orgies, and the world has always been insane. Every generation faces unique issues of cultural evolution that challenge their perception of any shared ideology or morality. We think we're on the same page in some broad generic sense, and then the world reminds us that we aren't. Last week, 
a good friend of mine was telling me that their kid came home from school saying that they were confused. The previous year in kindergarten, one of their classmates was a girl, but this year in first grade, that same student had returned to school as a boy. The child was a she last year, but now students were being told was a he. And this student who my friend's kid uh, knew last year as a girl, but had returned to school as a boy, now has a crush on another little girl in their class, or so the playground story goes, and my friend's kid was confused, confused about gender and crushes and school. And so my friend, standing there with all this information, takes a deep breath and says, okay, let's talk about this. Now, this is a conversation that my parents and their parents could have never imagined. Because crawling backward down the ideological timeline of the civilized world, some things change and some things don't. The political right, for example, paints a picture of a once glorious moral utopia that is sliding hopelessly into ethical disrepair on the runaway nightmare train of progressivism. But hundreds of years ago, the sex ethics of some of the biggest cultural hubs in the greatest empires of the world make America in 2022 look like an episode of The Dick Van Dyke Show. And cultural moral panic just slides from side to side, from the right to the left, depending on the era. So when I was a kid, for example, fundamentalism was taken for granted as an inherently conservative value. Conservatives, we understood, were the moral police. They were the bullies, the watchdogs of cultural morality. They held the rule book and they enforced it. Disagreeing with us isn't just another perspective, it's objectively morally wrong and we are unwilling to hear otherwise. We don't care about your worldview, your religious views, your upbringing, your culture. You must yield to our ideology in politics, in education, in culture, and in art. Anyone who doesn't use our approved words must be punished. Any art that sins against our moral paradigm must be vanquished. The artist silenced, the art itself censored. We're only doing what's right. But today, progressivism is now the moral police, the watchdogs of cultural morality. They hold the rule book and they enforce it. Disagreeing isn't just another perspective. It's objectively morally wrong, and we are unwilling to hear otherwise. We don't care about your worldview, your religious views, your upbringing, or your, or your culture. You must yield to our ideology in politics and culture and in art. Anyone who doesn't use our approved words must be punished. Any art that sins against our moral paradigm must be vanquished. The artist silenced, the art censored. We're only doing what's right. And then, through all that, with all of that constantly unfolding across the passage of time and throughout oscillating epochs of cultural evolution and devolution, journeys the disciple of Jesus. It is now, as it ever was, a resistance movement. It is a narrow road that is neither the right nor the left, it is not a war against the culture, and it is not an assimilation into it. There is only the way, faithfulness as an act of rebellion. For the next few weeks, I want to talk about what it means to follow Jesus in our particular era of insanity, why we're still here, and what we hope to do, and where we hope to go, God willing. 
So, I have a few book recommendations to round out and hopefully complement the work that we'll be doing Sunday nights in our Van City communities. First, we have uh, After Doubt by A.J. Swoboda, who's a professor in Portland. Great, thoughtful, readable encouragement on wrestling with faith and culture in a culture of deconstruction. We have Beautiful Resistance by John Tyson, which is all about recapturing an uncompromising vision of faithfulness and the, and the host culture becomes increasingly distant from the way of Jesus, how to follow Jesus well. We have uh, Disappearing Church by Mark Sayers, which is a fantastic read about faithfulness in a post-Christian culture. We have uh, Searching for Enough by my friend Tyler Staten, who's over at Bridgetown Church, the church that planted ours, which is about the tension between belief and doubt, how to navigate them both well. And because I always personally prefer fiction to nonfiction, we have a contemporary language version of The Pilgrim's Progress, which I uh, reread recently and was struck by the way that he depicts the journey of discipleship as this harrowing, dangerous, beautiful journey rather than a passive or comfortable state of being. And then finally, I actually have a book coming out on November 15th called, oh, stop, stop, now I yeah, <laughs> I have a book coming out on November 15th called Death to Deconstruction. This book, uh, the idea is that it deconstructs deconstruction, and it's about my own journey through doubt and despair and why I hold to faithfulness against what often feels like a backdrop of deconversion. If you want, you can, we don't have it at the book table tonight, but you can pre-order it from Amazon or your preferred bookstore, or you can wait, and we will eventually have it here at the book table as well. As always, all these books, including mine when it comes out, we sell at cost, meaning Van City, neither Van City nor myself profits from the books sold here. By design, we choose to do it that way. We, we really just believe in books and reading and making these resources available. So those will all be at the book table after the gathering if you want to give some of those books a shot. Now, open your Bibles to the Gospel of John chapter 15. John chapter 15. Years ago now, the first rumblings of panic over Jesus dropouts moved through evangelicalism. And I remember reading something or someone that worried, and I quote, the deconversion moment has become the new conversion moment. In other words, deconversion is the new conversion. Just as so many of us once stood huddled under the concert lighting of youth camps and festivals and high on teenage angst, our brains soupy with hormones, we cried and we raised our hands in worship and we said, I accept Jesus Christ into my heart as my personal Lord and Savior. Well, now these teenagers had become 20-somethings and 30-somethings and fed up with the lunacy of suffering and evil in a broken world, fed up with religious hypocrisy and nationalism and a Bible that they'd been clobbered with rather than being taught how to read and understand, they were having a new teary-eyed emotional conversion moment from the brittle husk of the American civil religion often called Christianity to something else. Maybe they'd be agnostic. The thrill of ambiguity, embracing no answers over firm ones. Or maybe they'd go full atheist. What better way to stick it to God than erasing him? Or maybe not. Maybe they'd drift down the buffet aisles of spirituality light and make their own plates. A small serving of Buddhism, a few slices of Christian mysticism with no crust, some Hindu philosophy as dressing served up on a hearty bed of American progressivism. Any way you slice it, we're out. 
they said, ex-vangelical, deconstructed, post-youth group. Take that, mom and dad. Take that, Pastor Jeff. Now, he's just a made-up person, by the way. Levi told me he actually had a Pastor Jeff. This is by no means an affront to that particular Pastor Jeff. Now, I would never presume to know what doubt and those dark nights of second-guessing and spiritual cold feet have been like for every Christian in, in this room. But notice that that last sentence presupposes that every one of us has had them, will have them. Last week, I read Brennan Manning's memoir, All is Grace. Now, Brendan Manning, if you're not familiar, was a prolific author and speaker whose favorite subject was easily the scandalous love of Jesus. In different seasons of his life, Manning had been a Catholic priest. He had transported water via a donkey for poor villagers. He had worked as a mason's assistant and a dishwasher in France. He was imprisoned by choice in Switzerland, and he spent six months in a remote cave somewhere in the Zaragoza desert. And though his memoir touches on some of these things, it's mostly about something else. One could easily read the entirety of the book of his life story as the tragedy of alcoholism. The book becomes a kind of Rorschach test in which confronting the bare ugly facts of Manning's struggle with addiction, his lies, and his screw-ups, one can interpret his entire life of failure. His faith and his ministry were both facades. Or one can lean full tilt into the weight of the book's title, All is Grace, and allow the, the brilliant love of Jesus to become a kind of cleansing beam that clears away Brennan Manning's sin and deception so that all truly does become grace. Or maybe there's actually truth in both things. And maybe we kind of already know that. The road of discipleship, though straight and narrow, is perilous. All of us know this. We walk upright, we run, we throw our heads back and bask in the all-warming glory of amazing grace, and then we fall, and we fail, and we crawl, and we scramble and teeter, and we quit, and we come back, and we cheat, and we lie, and we fight, and we hate, and then we start all over again. In Pilgrim's Progress, Bunyan imagines the road of discipleship lined with actual monsters and archers and liars and pitfalls and swamps. We go forward, the idea is, but then we also kind of go backward or we get lost and then we go forward again. We get hurt, we hurt other people, and along the dangerous narrow road, there are no walls. You either walk the road or you don't. There are no off-ramps because one can simply abandon the road at any time and at any point in the journey, and they do. There are no off-ramps, but there are deconversion moments, instances of doubt and despair, of frustration and disillusionment, of suffering, but of lucidity when the trials of the road become, at least we think, too much. And we pause where we are, and we lift one leg, and we let one foot hover above the ground just to the edge of the road, and we ask ourselves, what if I give up? In Brennan Manning's memoir, he remembers one of those deconversion moments that came when he least expected it. He had been living amongst the poor in rural France, shoveling manure, washing dishes, bringing water to villagers on a donkey's back, having one of the most spiritually enlightening times of his entire life. 
And it was in that season that in prayer one evening, the Spirit of God chose to expose his selfishness. And he was devastated by what he saw. I saw my life as vitiated by pride, he writes in his memoir, by the inordinate desire to be liked, loved, approved, applauded, and accepted. My motives were peeled away to reveal complete self-centered yuck. I thought maybe I had grown beyond it or out of it, but I hadn't. He went on to confess, I felt like my life was a waste, and I determined to commit spiritual suicide, cut myself off from God and the church and my brothers, turn my back on it all. And it was in then, in one of his most vivid deconversion moments, that another priest found Brennan in the chapel and asked him what had happened. And Brennan told him everything. And the other priest said this, you are on the threshold of receiving the greatest grace of your life. You are discovering what it means to be poor in spirit. And then he said, Brother Brennan, it's okay not to be okay. This other priest read to Brennan from the New English Bible, how blessed are those who know that they are poor. The kingdom of heaven is theirs. And so Brendan Manning looked down at his hovering foot and he returned it to the narrow road and took another step forward. And there would be a lot more falling before it was over. There would be a lot more deconversion moments. But this one, that night in the chapel in France, had been repurposed for a new conversion. After I read and reread that last week, I started thinking that maybe all of our big deconversion moments are actually just invitations to move deeper into the beautiful and terrifying storm of God's love and grace. That maybe we can, if we want, we can mask our hurt until it festers and seethes, or we can lean forward, hands up, chin down, and keep going in brutal, vulnerable honesty. And then I thought of the deconversion moments of Jesus himself. When the devil came to him and the Lord himself was tempted to throw it all away. We read that word in those stories and think, that eh, doesn't really mean tempted. It does. It means tempted. Tempted to relinquish his trust in the Father. Tempted to pervert the scriptures. Tempted by power, by glory. And tempted, though he was, Jesus moved through each opportunity to abandon ship past the deconstruction, past the deconversion, and deeper into the heart of knowing God through obedient faithfulness. Deconversion as the new conversion. Why, I wonder, do we vilify our dark nights of being romanced by deconversion as if they were scandals indicative of spiritual ineptitude? Doesn't every apprentice know that as the journey toward mastery moves forward, it gets harder, not easier? Don't they assume that each new test comes to them with increasing levels of complexity and that though their maturing apprenticeship equips and qualifies them for the task, it does not guarantee their victory? Instead, 
The kung fu student goes for the next belt, knowing they might fail. The boxer faces the next ranked contender, knowing they could be knocked out. The plumber sets out to repair the pipe without their teacher's assistance. The tattoo artist, he dabs the flesh with alcohol, takes a deep breath, and says, God, I hope I don't screw up this guy's shoulder forever. Which brings us to John 15. Maybe the most taught passage of Scripture at Van City Church is John 15, in which Jesus famously promises his disciples, I am the vine, you are the branches. Remain in me, Jesus keeps saying over and over again. The secret, the truth, the power is in proximity, intimacy with Jesus, closeness to Jesus. Stay with Jesus. Keep him before your thoughts. Hold him in your heart. Turn his words over in your head. Read them at dawn and at dusk. Sit before him in conversation and in reflection. What the medieval monk Brother Lawrence called practicing the presence of God. What Paul called prayer without ceasing. Abide in the vine. Be with Jesus. Remain in him. But after all that stuff, the passage we teach over and over and over again at Van City, after the stuff about the vine and the branches, Jesus goes on. Look down at John 15, beginning with verse 18. Katie read this moments ago. Jesus writes, or Jesus says, If the world hates you, keep in mind it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world. But I have chosen you out of the world, and that is why the world hates you. Remember what I told you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. They will, if, or they will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father as well. If I had not done among them the works no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. As it is, they have seen, and yet they have hated both me and my father. But this is to fulfill what is written in the law. They hated me without reason. When the advocate comes, whom I will send to you from the father, the spirit of truth who goes out from the father, he will testify about me. And you also must testify, for you have been with me from the beginning. And then, please listen to this, chapter 16, verse 1. All this, so all of that, the vine abiding, remain in me, the warnings, the inevitability of hardship, if they hated me, they'll hate you. All this I have told you so that you will not fall away. Abiding in the vine is more than the first priority of the disciple. It is the armor against the arrows of deconstruction and deconversion. All this I have told you so that you will not fall away. Jesus knew that we might. He'd been there before us. He had walked the road of faithfulness. When he was tempted to do otherwise, he went deeper into faithfulness before us to show us how. And he gave us the secret of resolve before the inevitability of our deconversion moments. Remain in me. The world has always been a crazy place, dark and twisted and broken with all its power mongering and jockeying for position and the moral high ground, the swinging pendulum of fundamentalism, right, then left, then right, then left. And against this backdrop, Everyone on the journey of discipleship, young and old, mature and immature, has and will arrive at junctions forking out to either abandon faith 
or to wade deeper into the wild waters of more faithfulness still. And though it may seem like a new phenomenon, there have always been eager legions lining up for the off-ramp. Jesus warned about it 2,000 years ago. Peter watched it happen. Paul wrestled with it throughout his writing in the New Testament. The church fathers and mothers confronted it and fought against it. John Bunyan allegorized it in 1678, and we're still reading Jesus and Peter and Paul and the early church fathers and mothers and John Bunyan all centuries later in another part of the world, in another branch of the movement, because we are still here. That priest who spoke those life-changing words to Brendan Manning on the evening of one of his great deconversion moments, his name was uh, Dominique. And as he aged, he continued to live in obscurity amongst the poor, preaching the gospel to the least of these. He apparently spent his last years uh, dying of cancer, working as a night watchman, at a Parisian factory because this gave him the time to, in the morning when he got off work, to cross over into the park and hang out with the riffraff and the least of these. And when he was found dead on the floor of his apartment, his journal was discovered nearby. The final entry said this, and I quote, All that is not the love of God has no meaning for me. I can truthfully say that I have no interest in anything but the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. If God wants it to, my life will be useful through my words and witness. If he wants it to, my life will bear fruit through my prayers and sacrifices. But the usefulness of my life is his concern, not mine. It would be indecent of me to worry about that. At the end of the journey of faithfulness as an act of rebellion against deconstruction and deconversion is love. Surrender to love on God's terms, not ours. Maybe a jaded, affluent, white, deconstructed millennial might write in their journal of their early deconverted adulthood. Maybe they would write, All that is not the love of God has no meaning for me if, by love of God, you mean what I mean, which is the freedom to interpret said love according to my standards informed by pervasive and ever-evolving cultural ideologies that align with my socio-political preferences and social media tribe. Maybe they'd go on to write, if I want it to, my life will be useful because I am very special, one of a kind. And God could not possibly ask me to do anything I would not want to do or lay down any identity or desire that I desire. And if he would, then he isn't God at all, but an oppressive monster designed by the patriarchy. And I know much better and can do much better. Please follow and like and subscribe. (laughs) The junctions between deconversion and deeper faith are painful. And the road leading up to them Equally so. The Catholic monk Thomas Keating wrote that the cross Jesus asked you to carry is yourself. It's all the pain inflicted on you in your past and all the pain you've inflicted on others. It's true that, like Brendan Manning, we often arrive on the shores of deconversion after another stormy sea of discipleship and and find ourselves laid bare as frauds. Selfish, petty, and insincere. 
But we also get there in pain. We have been hurt and we have done plenty of hurting ourselves. There is often immaturity and self-interest and deconstruction. Obviously, my snarky little rant back there revealed that. But that does not delegitimize our frailty and our weakness and our genuine suffering. And this is also why at that very crossroads, Jesus appears to beckon us deeper still. The crucible of doubt becoming the invitation to greater healing and wholeness and salvation. You are on the threshold of receiving the greatest grace of your life. You are discovering what it means to be poor in spirit. It's okay not to be okay. I don't know where you're at or where you've been between these dark nights or maybe just beyond one or maybe you're on the precipice of another. I don't know. But I know that they appear before all of us along the narrow road. But we're still here. Van City Church, by you know, many traditional metrics, is nothing special. Though the leadership of this church remains deeply grateful for this community and its resources, it's you know, something that many might describe as a humble operation, to say the least. And honestly, I'd love for our church to grow. I'd love the possibility of a bigger team or for the budget to be less of a pinch. But I've often thought of Van City Church affectionately, almost like, you know, some kind of church basement recovery program dedicated to faithfulness as an act of rebellion. When addicts shuffle into musty old rooms, sipping bad coffee from styrofoam cups, reminding one another the motto, keep coming back. It works. It works if you work it. Because they've learned the truth about togetherness as the venue for a faithful life of integrity. It works does not mean here is the infallible secret of victory over addiction. Instead, it means... If we keep trying, and if we don't give up on one another or ourselves, and if we remain faithful, and if we keep coming back, we can do this together. All of us have and will arrive at our own moments between deconversion and deeper faith. What made the difference for Brennan Manning that night at that chapel in France? It's actually one simple variable in the equation. In the story, as he walked out prepared to commit what he called spiritual suicide, he met another disciple of Jesus, one that he called brother, who stopped and asked him, quite simply, his own words, what happened, and then spoke into his life. That is church. Down the helter-skelter spiral of cultural insanity and tribal warfare across the stormy seas of discipleship and doubt, we can beckon one another into greater faithfulness. Or we can stand against the wind and the rain all alone, our tired legs shaking, ready to give up with no one to hold on to us. God is inviting us, all of us, us as a family, Van City Church, into greater faithfulness. Faithfulness to him and faithfulness to one another. An outpost of imperfect love, holding fast to the truth in the ongoing earthly epic of anything but. Keep coming back.
it works. Let's pray and ask God's Spirit to empower us for faithfulness. Thanks for listening to Van City Church. There are more teachings and available resources from Van City at vancity.church. You can support Van City financially by visiting vancity.church/giving.